Okay. We're back in Matthew 12. Let's open up our Bibles and read where we left off in verse 30, Matthew 12 last week. Verse 30 through 37. Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of The heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. That is God speaking. Let us pray. Father, deal bountiful with us, your servants, your church, that we might live and keep your word, that we might live in a way that is worthy of your calling, of the gospel. Of your Son, open up our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. In Jesus' name, amen. So maybe we could start with a, um, a, a Bible study tip and something that I think through a lot when I'm preparing. And it can be a little bit overwhelming. And that's there's there's at least three things you could be looking for or thinking about when you're reading and studying your Bible. Typically, the three things that you can think about is how does what I'm reading fit into the entire narrative of, say, the book you're in? We're in Matthew. Even the entire narrative of the whole Bible. And when I say narrative, I mean the story. Like what's what's being unfolded, what's trying to be communicated. And you think about it that way, and then you can also go a little bit closer and think about what's happening in that exact moment in the narrative or in the letter. So there's something to pull out that's happening then and there, but it's also playing a part in the overall story and narrative of the Bible or the book or letter that you're reading. And then there's one more thing, and sometimes is typically neglected, even even by me in thinking through this, and that's what theme or maybe doctrine is here that touches all that, that, that runs all throughout scripture. What's a what's a, a Christian doctrine or theme that I can see here that not just will enhance my thought process, but also enhance my life for the sake of living a life to the glory of God. And so that's how we're going to approach it this morning. We're going to look at verse 30 and think what's happening in the narrative of Matthew at this point. And then we're going to look at verse 31 through 32 and see a little bit closer to the incident or the scene that's taking place here in this moment. 
And then verse 33 through 37, we're going to see the Christian theme or doctrine that's planted here that you can find all throughout Scripture to help us and how to apply what's being said. Uh, And if you open up your bulletin, uh, what you'll see are those three points. And hopefully they can help you and guide you along as well as some sub points throughout. So let's just get get right into it. The first thing that we're going to see is how this point in Matthew sort of pushes us further into the story. It would be called a plot point. This is a plot point of Matthew's story about Jesus, meaning he's about to tell us something or say something that should get you more into what he's saying, more into the story. You know the the idea of a plot point when you're reading a book or watching a movie. It's that fir- you get that first plot point while you're watching a movie and you're thinking, "Oh, this is getting interesting." And so that happens in verse 30. But I need to make sure that we don't forget what we've been talking about up to this point. Now I'm about to tell you very very quickly a summation of what's been going on in the narrative of Matthew and him giving to us what is called the gospel. So here is the major plot point and that first little um, dash there in your notes. And it's no neutrality. No neutrality. You can't be neutral. But that doesn't make any sense if you don't understand what Matthew's been trying to say this whole time. And that what Matthew's been trying to say this whole time is that the king of kings is here. And along with him, his kingdom is at hand. You're you're probably not going to be able to write this down, but I just want to give you some quick points for the first 12 chapters. Number In chapter 1, he begins and says it outright. As we looked at it last week, Jesus Christ, the son of David, king, right? And then in the chapter number two, what's the theme that starts chapter number number two? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And then in chapter three, we get the forerunner of the king. And what does he say? Not just that the king is here, but repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And at the end of chapter 3, you get the king's coronation, Jesus' baptism. The the, the skies open up, the the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and the Father uh, proclaims with his voice, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And after that coronation in chapter 4, what happens? A battle between two kings, a battle of two rulers, as Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. We know the outcome. Jesus is victorious. And from that time, after his coronation, after his, after his battle in the wilderness, he goes forth with a message of what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so even through four chapters, king and kingdom are the big theme of Matthew. And then at the end of chapter four, he goes throughout from place to place, proclaiming the gospel of what do you think? The kingdom. And then you get to the Sermon on the Mount, and what is he what is the king teaching? The ways and the law of the kingdom. This is what it is and like and to be in the kingdom of heaven. And then that goes through 6 and 7, and then you get to chapter 8, and then you get to see that authority of the king, the power of the king, expressed as Jesus makes uh, all of his power and authority worked or visible through his works. Healings, controlling the seas, forgiving sin. Chapter 10, Jesus gathers workers to assist him. Because there is work to be done in spreading the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And he sends them out saying, what do you think? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
verse 11, I'm sorry, chapter 11, we see clear rejection of the king, the kingdom, and his message. Clear opposition. And we see it in the faces of some of the Jews, namely the Pharisees. And then in chapter 12, what we looked at last week, that there is a greater work against the king and his kingdom than just the Pharisees, but whom they are under the kingdom that they dwell in, and that is the kingdom of Satan. And we spoke last week that Jesus entered into the kingdom, the domain of darkness, by taking on flesh. He's bound Satan by defeating his greatest power, that is death, and now he is plundering. The kingdom of God is ravaging the kingdom of Satan. And it is happening by the same message, the gospel that has gone forth throughout all the world. And the work is not yet done. But you get to verse 30, all this buildup about this king and this kingdom, and then this, this plot point comes. This point of this is getting serious. Look what he says in verse 30. The turning of the story is when he says, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, this, I think this verse is less popular than it should be, or less familiar than it should be, because it's like the 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 unpopular verse sitting right next to the really popular verse. The verse is about the unpardonable or unforgivable sin. Those within the minds of Christians and the attentions of Christians have spent so much time trying to determine and work out the, the unforgivable sin. And the thing about it is, the funny thing about it is, and in some discussions I've been having lately... It's, it's interesting that you've got two verses side by side, one so clear, if you're not with me, you're against me, and then in verse 31 and 32, in these verses about the, uh, the unforgivable sin, being a little bit more cloudy, or if you're like me, quite cloudy, not as obvious that the one that gets the most attention is the cloudy passage. That's not okay. That's not good, because we miss something greatly in verse 30. Whoever is not with Jesus is against him. Whoever does not gather with him scatters. Three things, three things really quick that we can get out of that one verse. And I've already touched upon it and told you that Jesus is saying you cannot be neutral. No neutrality. Okay, I want you to take a step back and imagine that you've never heard of this story and you were reading it for the first time. We have hindsight when it comes to everything in the gospel because we've heard the story. We know the path that Christ took. We know what God was seeking to accomplish through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But imagine as intended, Matthew writes this gospel and sends it out. There are people who read this gospel who had never heard of the name Jesus. And they're going through those first 12 chapters and going, man, this is pretty good. This is interesting. What's going to happen? And then they get to verse 30 and they see this bomb. If you're not with him, you're against him. It's black or white. There's no gray area. He's also saying you're either with him or you're with Satan. There's no neutrality. There's no middle ground. There's no third way. Spurgeon says it this way. Men must either come to his side or be reckoned his opponent. Men must either come to his side or be reckoned his opponent. 
That's frightful. Because secondly, if there's no neutrality and there isn't, secondly, it's not that there's you can't there's not just that you can't find a middle ground, but if you are not with him, he is against you. As you are against him. These two words that are used in verse 30, with and against prepositions, just to make sure I knew what a preposition was, I looked it up. Um, and it, what, it, what it suggests is your relationship with something, with or against. All right? So the, the, the words that kept coming up when I was looking at those two words were accompany and opposition. And so accompany, where do you think my mind went? Music, right? An accompaniment a piano or guitar, is to come alongside and to work with whoever's singing. Going in the same direction. Singing in the same key. They're with. To be against is to come up here with a guitar. We're in the key of E. And the silly guitar player puts his capo on key of B. And starts playing his music. There's no music being accomplished. For he is against the one he is there to accompany. But in, in reality, this is an illustration of war. Of battle. It got me to think about, you all know the name, Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold was a major general in the uh, American Continental Army. George Washington trusted him and placed him at West Point to, to watch the fort at West Point, to guard it and protect it. But around that time, the plot was discovered that Arnold had planned to surrender the fort to the enemy. Luckily, they were able to thwart the plan, the plot, but later, Benedict Arnold became a commissioned general for the enemy and would lead the enemy army against the ones he had betrayed. Again, Spurgeon's clear. Be with Christ or be reckoned his opponent. It's a scary thing to fall into the hands of God. Because what is the outcome for that kingdom that stands against Christ? He says it in Matthew 16. They shall not prevail. Thank the Lord. Both illustrations, thirdly, that I just mentioned, show you that you're working towards something, whether it be victory in a battle or completion of a beautiful melody. You're working towards something. And this is why he says... Whoever does not gather with me scatters, implying that the work that the king is doing, the work of the kingdom is to gather as they plunder the kingdom of Satan. If you're not gathering with him, you're scattering. When I first read this this week and I thought about gathering, my mind went to wheat because as we go through Matthew there's going to be a lot of gathering wheat in certain parables. But when I add the word scatter, I, th- I think Jesus had another agricultural illustration in mind. Sheep. Right? Sheep. Gathering and scattering. And when I thought about that, my mind directly went to John 10, which we read. Why John 10? Not just because in John 10 we have the good shepherd... But we also have what? The thief. 
And as the good shepherd gathers, the thief has come to scatter, to kill, steal, and destroy. Just a few verses out of John 10 to help us see that. Just... To hear, uh, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Think, gather. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. In verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as my Father knows me, and I know the the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I could read I could read all of chapter ten. But you see the work of the king, the son, the good shepherd, as he gathers his flock. Yet there is one who seeks to scatter, to kill, steal, and destroy. And if you keep reading John ten, again we see the outcome of is inevitable that the sheep hear his voice he knows them and they follow me he gives them eternal life they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my father's hand the thief will be hopeless against the sheep of the shepherd this is the victory of the kingdom of heaven so as we finish this thought and Point one, there are two ways we can be with and, with and or against Jesus. Salvifically, first, well, all I mean by that is to be with Jesus is to be redeemed, saved, adopted, going from Benedict Arnold to a son. That is how we become to be with Jesus. There's, there's a possibility that some of us sit here today on the wrong side. Perhaps intentionally rebellious or deceptively rebellious. You must come to the right side. You must come to the side of victory. You must come to the king by faith. But there's also the possibility that even we sheep might find ourselves against the king. Remember Peter? Far be it from you, Lord. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. So we have to understand, Christian, that you could have a lapse as Peter and find yourself on the wrong side. But thanks be to God that the Lord will not leave us there. And he might say something hard, And say, get behind me, Satan. But he brings us back to the right side. And then that takes us to verse 31. The underlined, I'm I'm sorry, the, uh, the scene that we're in. The tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. The, that which is so... At the forefront of this passage, the unpardonable sin. And we have to remember the context of what's going on here. Remember, 
Earlier, in the few verses before, the Pharisees witnessed Jesus, his power and his authority, heal a man of a demon possession. They acknowledged the, the, the power, they acknowledged the healing, and then attribute it to Satan. So verse 31 and 32 directly address that issue. Verse 31 and verse 32 directly address that issue. Look what he says. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So in a sense, as we think about being with or against Jesus, in verse 31 and 32, Jesus says that there are actually two ways to be against him. Two, two possibilities. One of them is forgivable. The other is not. Two ways you could be against Jesus. One is forgivable. The other is not. And so as we think about this unforgivable or unpardonable sin, we have to lay out some parameters. Because I've heard some pretty gnarly things about what the unforgivable sin is. So let's make sure that as we've, as we've studied what's being said here and the, and the context... We lay out some parameters or some, some hedges, some boundaries to keep us within what the Bible is trying to teach us. Um, but understand, as we think about these parameters, that the, there's a distinction between sinning against Jesus that is forgivable and sinning against the Spirit that is not forgivable. And the first thing I want you to understand, the first parameter is... There's no, it's, this isn't a directional sin. What I mean is, is it's not, okay, if I sin and say something bad about Jesus, I can be forgiven. But if I turn and I say something bad about the Holy Spirit, that's not forgivable. That's not what he's saying. Okay? It's not directional. Because here's the reality. If you sin against the Spirit, you're still sinning against the Son. You understand that? It's not, oh, if I talk bad about the Spirit, then that's an unforgivable sin. No, no, no. It's, it's not that at all. It's a little bit more. And we're going we're gonna to understand that in the definition. So it's not directional at a certain part, person of the, of the Godhead. It's not measurable. The, the unpardonable sin is not measurable. And here's what I mean. You can't look at someone's life and go, oh, yep, they've committed the unpardonable sin. It's not, you, you cannot do that. And you cannot also look at someone's life and the magnitude of their sin and say, oh, they've gone so far that they're to the point of being uh, unpardonable. There's no, a, there's no way to measure it, Okay. In our eyes, by our judgment. And number three, the church is not immune to it. And we'll discuss this a little bit more in a little bit. The term that would then be used is apostasy. Okay? Apostasy. So it's not directional towards a certain person of the Trinity. It's not, you can't look at someone's life and, and say, oh, yep, they're there. Uh, and it's it's not um, the church is not immune to it. So what's our definition? I'm looked at many definitions of it and think that this is the best way for us to explain what the unpardonable sin is, considering what has just happened in our text. What just happened? Jesus did something by his power. The Pharisees acknowledged that power and what that what had happened, and then they attributed it to Satan. Here it is. The sin against the Son, which is forgivable, right, is rejection of the truth of the gospel. 
The sin against the Son is rejection of the truth of the gospel. There may be repentance and forgiveness for that. But the sin against the Spirit is rejection of the same truth in full awareness that that is exactly what one is doing. Thoughtfully, willfully, intentionally, self-consciously rejecting the work of the Spirit. There can be no other explanation of Jesus' exorcism in this passage than the power of God. The Pharisees have acknowledged the power that is there and they have attributed it to Satan. And Jesus says, for that, that is an unforgivable sin. Now, some examples will help us. Paul was a Pharisee. Remember that? Paul was a Pharisee. Was Paul forgiven? Yes. Do you know what Paul is known for? Let's use his own words. Hear, hear the sin of this man. I was a blasphemer a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. If you thought you could measure the unpardonable sin, you would point at Paul and go, ha ha, he's gone too far. But I received mercy, he says. God hadn't made that conclusion. He hadn't drawn that line. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now let me read my, 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 it's not my definition. But let me read the definition again. The sin against the Son, which is forgivable, is rejection of the truth of the gospel. And that can include... Blaspheming, persecuting, and being an insolent opponent to Christ and his church. But the sin against the spirit that's not forgivable is rejection of the same truth that I just told you, but in full knowledge and awareness that it's exactly what one is doing thoughtfully, Willfully and self-consciously rejecting the work of the Spirit. There, I can give you one more example of that sort of sin. Judas. Does that make sense? I want you to take for a second and understand the magnitude of Paul's sin. And then see how great the grace of our Lord is. Do you understand? The difference between the Pharisees in this chapter and Paul is between the failure to recognize the light, which Paul did, he, had a, he failed to recognize the truth, but then the light shone upon him, right? But for these Pharisees, there was a de deliberate rejection of it once they recognized it. What's present in the unpardonable sin? Knowledge. Knowledge. And this is where we get to the idea of apostasy in the church. It would seem as if today the greatest, the dangerous place for one to experience the unpardonable sin would be in the pew. Why? Because there's knowledge galore going on through here. I 
I really wanted to walk a little bit through Hebrews 6. Many are afraid of Hebrews 6 because it doesn't seem to fit well with the idea of not being able to lose one's salvation. But what all Hebrews 6 is saying when it talks about falling away, or Hebrews 10, continuing to sin deliberately after knowing, after receiving knowledge. Hebrews 6 says, It's impossible to restore again to repentance those who have fallen away after they have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared and the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. I've always wondered, why restore them again to repentance? And then it hit me, how do you enter the kingdom of heaven? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he gives an illustration, which I think is easy for us to understand in Hebrews 6. He gives an illustration of a field that receives rain, the goodness that in life that's needed to produce fruit. And as that field takes in all that goodness and all that life, all it bears is thorns and thistles. And it's called worthless, near to cursed, and its end is to be burned. There's two concerns about apostasy in the church today, the church at large. Two concerns. Many are leaving Christianity to never return. It is the prime definition of apostasy. But the more heartbreaking part is that many are headed towards apostasy today while sitting in the pew. Why? How? Christianity that is not pointed to the exaltation of Christ through the power and the ministry of the word. Let me say that again. Christianity that is not pointed to the exaltation of Christ through the power and ministry of the word will always become focused on man. Always. When Christ is not exalted by the word of God within a Christian community, the focus will always turn upon man. And for a liberal church, the problem will then turn to look like, let's figure out how to flourish in this life only. We want to fulfill the desires of this church or this life in a liberal church. And what does that give rise to? But progressive social agenda, abortion rights, Love how we want to love. Don't judge me, Christianity. And all of those things that I just mentioned, abortion rights, uh, love, let me love how I want to love, don't judge me, Christianity, actually becomes for them Christian virtue. But then on the opposite side, in a conservative Christian church, as the focus has been taken off of Christ and put onto man, it's become a choose a side because we know you're either for him or against him. Be saved from the hell and damnation and the torment, but then let me carry on my life because I'm not looking to Christ any more than the liberal church is. As long as I affirm Jesus, live a good life, or affirm Jesus that he lived a perfect life, died for my sins, rose from the dead, and the Bible is the word of God, salvation is for my sake, and then salvation lets me live as guilt-free as I want. And so in the end, when Christ is removed, the power of the word of God is taken away. The outcome, the end result for a liberal church and a conservative church is the same place. Does that make sense? That's apostasy. It's unforgivable sin. So what's the remedy? It's verse 33 through 37. Where does Jesus want us to take all of this as we think about this plot point where he sets it up and says there's no neutrality? You're either with me or against me. When he explains the danger of uh, blasphemy against the spirit, 
When all this comes, what's the thing Jesus wants us to understand? And this is the underlying theme, the Christian doctrine that should touch upon us here in this moment. And he says it in verse 33, and it's this. A tree is known by its fruit. A tree is known by its fruit. Now, I struggled with this. Now, I'm about to tell you that for the majority, all of my life, I've miscalculated verse 33. And I tell you this as hope to understand, one, as encouragement, that if you don't understand a passage, join the club. I've gotten this one wrong forever. But I also want to explain, I also want to tell you that so that you know that don't ever stop studying a a scripture or a passage or a doctrine just because you think you got it figured out. Because here's the thing. Look at verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. When I've read that, I've always thought, okay, we need to make us good because we can't produce good fruit unless we're a good tree. But here's actually what's being said. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, what do you make of me? Now, why, why is there in verse 33 through 37, there is one part where there is a command or an imperative verb, and it's this one make either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. He says, all right, Pharisees, make up your mind. Am I good or am I bad? See, in John this is so interesting in John. Um, in multiple times, the the word make they used in against against Christ. I'm trying to find. I'm missing it in my notes here. Give me just a second. Oh, they say to Jesus in John, what do you make yourself to be? And then twice, do you know what they say to him? We'll answer that question for you. You make yourself to be God. And so now he's turning the tables and says, all right, then step up to the plate. What do you make of me? Because. Either what I just did in exercising that demon from that poor man was good or it was bad. If you want to attribute to Satan, then you need to call it bad. Because I can't produce good fruit and be a bad tree. Jesus then goes on and says in verse 4. But you know, it's almost as if I said it with a bit of anger. Jesus might, this might actually have been a point of grace, an opportunity Jesus was giving these Pharisees. As he's just said that there is sin and blasphemy that you can cross, that you can never come back from. And then he gives them this question. He gives them gives them this command, gives them this opportunity. How do you see me? If that's the case, he comes to his senses in verse 34. Or he knows all he knows all along because he calls them what? You brood of vipers. Here's the crazy part. You sons of Satan. He is knowing what is in them. He is knowing that they are against him. He knows that they can only produce bad. How can you speak good? He gave, am I good or am I bad? 
How can you speak good? How can you make that right choice when you are evil? Out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. So we go back to the question. Well, I didn't ask it because I missed it. How do we avoid apostasy? You must always keep asking yourself and never stop asking yourself, what do I make Jesus out to be? That's the only hope you have. That's the only route to being a good tree. Who do you make Jesus out to be? Verse 35 says, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And you say, I want to be a good tree. Well, then you first must look at Christ and see him and say, you are the good tree. Jesus will ask the disciples, who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I am with you. It's not a one-time declaration that gets, that gets to put you on Jesus' team. But what you make of Jesus becomes your identity. You are not good because you've got a lot of knowledge. You've got your theology figured out. You're not good because you're diligent in keeping the Ten Commandments and you know the law back and forth. Only Christ, the one who is good, can make you good. When you're pursuing goodness through anything, anything outside of union with Christ by faith, you are perhaps putting yourself on the path to unforgiveness. I'm going to say it again. If you pursue righteousness, goodness, outside of anything but faith in Christ, you are potentially putting yourself on a course to cross the unpardonable line. For you are not looking to Christ. You're looking to yourself. But you can confess with Paul the saying that is trustworthy and full of acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save bad trees. How are you saved as a bad tree? You look at him and say, you are good. And I need you. For I am bad. It's that easy. And then the grace of the Lord overflows you with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The good tree who produces good fruit. And you think about that doctrine and you think about what it is to produce good fruit. And when God makes a good tree, he will, he will produce good fruit. But we always have to be evaluating our fruit, right? Your thoughts, your words, your deeds, your actions. The fruit tells you about what's going on in your heart. Self-examination is priority. But let me warn you, self-examination can also deceive you. Two things. What do you remember the pop quizzes in school? You gotta take a test. You weren't expecting it. And then it makes matters worse and they make you grade your own test. (laughs) 
what what are the what are the the two ways to truly examine yourself your test and make sure that you're passing well maybe they gave you the answer key on the board and that and all the right answers are there on the board and so you know I can examine I can I can I can look at my test and know how I did because I'm seeing the key Look at Christ. If you were to self-examine yourself, start by looking to Christ. McShane says, for every one glance at yourself, take ten at him. And the other way is to pass your test to your neighbor. Right? Right? These people here, this church, your brothers and sisters in Christ, are here to help examine you, to test you, to evaluate your fruit. And you get something like what we hear out of Hebrews. Take care, brothers. Take care of one another. So that there will not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I hope that we as a church will be so committed to loving one another and evaluating the fruit of one another for the sake of our souls, that if we see bad fruit in your life, by the, by the love and grace of God, we'll tell one another. And I hope that we'll love you so well that if you don't listen, we'll turn you over to Satan for a season and hope that you will repent and come back and not fall away. And be found with Christ, gathering with his church, plundering the kingdom of Satan. Let's pray.